Well, <clears throat> our first class was basically on, on Christian essentials, and we looked a little bit last time at Reformed distinctives and talked about the tulip, the the uh, doctrines of grace, or the rulip, or whatever our flower ended up being that was deformed. And uh, uh, we talked uh, some about Presbyterian um, different forms of uh, church government or polity, which we call it, that um, uh, there's hierarchical and then there's the congregational style. And we believe the Presbyterian form of government is, is something that comes out of Scripture uh, that we don't try to impose on it. Uh, and that really is a plurality of elders, uh, not a hierarchy of elders. And that's in its in its simplest form, um, and and we have at the local level the session, uh, which in in uh, at Trinity here consists of Brian and myself as ruling elders and Zach as teaching elder, and excuse me, and we uh, together form the session, which are then represent at Presbytery, which is the regional, uh, and in some cities uh, there are enough. Uh, in our denomination, Presbyterian Church in America, there are enough congregations. Uh, for instance, on the East Coast, places like Tennessee, you'll have multiple presbyteries even in a city. Um, but here in in uh, our uh, rural uh, Colorado, even with Denver, um, we I think have about what was it, 32? I think at last count or 33. Um, and, but that includes Colorado and Wyoming and Montana, and we, That's th- it. Th- we haven't done that section South Dakota, South Dakota yet. Uh, thing. Uh, there's talk about South Dakota uh, coming into the to the uh, Rocky Mountain Presbytery, but I I don't know how far that's gone. Um, and then uh, there's the uh, which sounds hierarchical, but it actually isn't, which is some Presbyterian-oriented or governed churches call it the Synod, um, which gets really confusing because both Presbyterians and Methodists, which are hierarchical, call their top level a Synod. Uh, the Missouri Synod Lutheran call theirs a Synod. Um, so um, in the PCA... Uh, we call it General Assembly. In, in general, if you have Presbyterian in the name or Reformed Presbyterian in the name, you generally, if your denomination is a historical Presbyterian denomination, generally it's Session, Presbytery, and General Assembly. And that's pretty historical. But if you've come out of the Reformed, uh, Dutch Reformed, or one of those uh, Reformed churches from the continent, um, usually... Um, they use different terminology uh, for those various uh, meeting, uh, whether it's a local or regional or or the entirety of the denomination. So, uh, but again, even at the synod level, we're not talking about a hierarchy. It's a a flat, uh, if you will, um, relational uh, group of elders. Um, that rule together um, 
rather than uh, from the top down or, or even the bottom up, if you will. So today we want to look at, and so we looked at uh, reform distinctives. Um, also, I think we talked uh, about the, um, the regulative principle of worship, uh, where we, uh, as Presbyterian comes out of Scripture, we, we prefer to look at Scripture to see how we are to worship, and the Scripture um, gives us a picture of God telling his people how they are to worship rather than them simply worshiping according to the dictates of what they don't find prohibited. And so uh, we, we call uh, that the regulative principle. We, we take from the scripture what God want, how God wants us to worship, and we'll look a little bit more at that as well, because it's so essential to the church. Excuse me. Today, we want to look at the means of grace um, in this class, and this is uh, we'll look at the preaching and the sacraments, or word and sacrament. We, in fact, you'll hear us use that terminology a lot. Word and sacrament um, is the primary means of grace, and um, of course, in Biblically, we believe that there are only two sacraments which consist of the Lord's Supper and baptism. Um, and one is uh, like in the, under the Old Covenant where you had circumcision being a sign of the covenant, uh, uh, one-time participation uh, in that sign and seal and in the Lord's Supper just like the Passover. In fact, the Passover is actually, or the Lord's Supper is actually called a Passover. Um, and you, you may learn today that um, um, there was more than one Passover even under the Old Covenant. It wasn't simply the Passover. There were several Passovers. And then lastly, uh, prayer uh, we look to as a means of grace. Now, these are not the only means of grace, but these are the common uh, and primary means of grace that we have uh, in the church. So, Christianity is not just a collection of individuals, but a, a in a real sense, a religion of community. Um, but not a communal religion. Okay? Uh, the, the, di- the difference being is we are a community under God of people called out. The Bible expresses this in various ways. That it's referred to as the household of God uh, in Ephesians 2, um, a holy nation, 1 Peter 2, uh, the Israel of God in Galatians, um, and the visible form of the kingdom of God, Matthew, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, and also in Revelation, speaks about the church being the visible kingdom or manifestation of God's kingdom. Um, so if, if these titles really underscore the importance of the church as a community, then we really should expect to have God's blessing as a community when we come together as his people. And n- not only when we're together, but when we're apart as well. Uh, he blesses us in a unique way through the means that are ordinarily available to us. And 
That's why we call them means of grace. They're means of God's grace. Why does God work through means? Because he wants. (laughs) He can't accomplish everything by himself. Of course he could. Uh, After all, he created the universe out of nothing, so he doesn't necessarily have to use means of grace, yet he chooses to use means just as he ordinarily provides healing through a physician or through our immune system, so he ordinarily provides the benefits of salvation through the means of grace, um, preaching of the word, sacraments, and prayer. So let's look first at, at preaching and sacraments. Um, we know from Ephesians 2.8 that, that faith comes from God but the end of Romans 10, uh, we see and explain to us how we receive this faith ordinarily. Uh, Paul says, "How then will they be called? How will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news! So faith comes from hearing." and hearing through the word of Christ. So we have the ordinary means of grace through the preaching of the word calling God's people to himself. So the gospel uh, is participatory uh, for the church. We are called to preach. Um, Paul worked backwards in this little uh, section that we just read with a series of rhetorical questions as he often does. He began stating the obvious and then uh, uh, calling on God for salvation requires something about the gospel. You got to know it. We talked about uh, saving faith. Um, well, we got we've got to know what the gospel is before we can believe. Yet he didn't stop there. He went he went on to show that believing the gospel originates in hearing the gospel. So. I guess we could say, well, what's the difference between hearing and reading the gospel? I mean, these in the past that you know we could say, well, maybe that was true, but now there's with the internet and Bibles on every you know accessible nearly to everyone in the world. If not, um, why not just read the gospel? What's the difference? Why can't people just read the gospel for themselves? But Paul didn't say here, he didn't link hearing and reading. Um, He linked hearing to preaching. Um, And no doubt there are those who have, I've known people who have read the gospel and God has used that, but ordinarily um, most of those people as well have come under preaching um, after they read the gospel. Um, so he had a, a specific kind of preacher in mind, those who are sent. And that, that's something that it, it's not simply uh, that we have a, an ability or a conviction to preach. We have to have the authority to preach. Um, and such a pre- preacher, like our pastor, they don't select themselves. Um, and, and I think that's important for us in the church to understand. Just because you uh, are good at public speaking uh, or 
you have other qualities that would make preaching available through you, that doesn't mean you're a preacher. Um, such a preacher uh, that we see in the in the scripture aren't self-selected, and, and I think Paul is probably the greatest example of that. <laughs> he definitely wasn't self-selected. Um, he has to be appointed or sent by God, and it's through the agency of the church primarily. Uh, now, obviously, Paul was commissioned by. Christ himself, the apostles were commissioned by Christ, but if you will, Christ is the head of the church, they were still called by the church to preach Um, his disciple Timothy, Paul's disciple Timothy, was ordained by the presbytery to be an evangelist in 2 Timothy 4 Um, but Paul ends up in in that passage um, coming to the conclusion that ordinarily Faith comes through the preaching of the gospel, hearing the word preached. And thus, preaching becomes a primary means of grace no matter how many times we've heard the gospel. Um, And um, the preaching is that that creates faith in the heart that God uses um, and strengthening that faith. So we have both hearing and believing and the strengthening of that faith uh, Romans 16.25 speaks about that. What is preaching? It's a, a, an important question, I think, for every church to consider that they offer the means of grace to their people uh, the way we see it in Scripture. Um, uh, a religious play or skit or some other form of uh, Preaching isn't necessarily something that is prohibited and may be useful in other settings, but when uh, we come together as the church of God, um, the primary means of grace to us include the preaching of the gospel by one who is called by the church to preach. And uh, it involves public speaking, but it's more than just rhetoric. Um, so I, I don't think you can, uh, from Scripture, come to the conclusion that any kind of public speaking or any replacement for the pulpit uh, is valid. Um, it includes the communication of fact, but it's not simply a lecture. So preaching is, is something that concerns the changing of attitudes but it's not simply motivational. Um, it involves all of those aspects, but it's more than just the total of those aspects. So that's why we'll, we see that preaching is revered by Scripture, so it should be revered by the church, and it should be taken seriously by the church. So what is it? Preaching is literally proclamation. Um, some people would like to associate preaching and, and prophecy uh, as being something what, somewhat identical, but neither are those exactly the same thing. Uh, there may be aspects of, of the prophetic word uh, coming through the preacher, but that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, he is to be considered a prophet other than the broad scope of the word 
meaning speaking forth the word of God. It's declaring Christ. It's declaring Christ and all of his benefits. And that's why, why um, we don't simply uh, have Zach just whatever topic he happens to uh, decide week to week or feel that he needs to do. Uh, he doesn't just do that. We, that's why we go uh, verse by verse and, and we see that not only um, in, in the preaching of the, uh, of the apostolic um, tradition, but we also see it in the history of the people of Israel that that is the way that the word is proclaimed. Um, so there's a plea involved there too. It's an urgent plea to repentance. So the call to repentance is there as well. And, and it's not only at the time um, of preaching to those who are unsaved. We're all called to repent. That's another reason why we see in Scripture and why we during the liturgy um, have used as a means of grace as well the reading of the law and confession and assurance. Those things are part of um, the, this this process and this plea for repentance that comes from Scripture. Um, so, preaching uh, as a primary means of grace um, I think in our day and age has been so associated with the evangelist, uh, whether it be on the TV or the local, uh, whoever it is, um, that has that's taken away from the clear understanding of the preacher as uh, the person who is speaking on God's behalf and calling sinners to repentance. So you have the evangel there. You have um, the strengthening of the, of the body of Christ. And you have the clear declaration of God's word in its entirety. And I think that is important as well, that we don't simply preach a little part of the scripture. We, we try to preach the entirety of scripture here um, that's why you'll you'll find Zach preaching through complete books. That's why very seldom I don't know how many, but we could probably count on on probably less than both of our hands the number of topical sermons you've preached in the last five years. It's not very many. Uh, uh, he doesn't often preach a topical sermon. They're usually very good if he does, but they're rare. They're rare, very rare. Um, Advent or something would be a. What's that? Advent would be kind of. Yeah, Advent might be a a different one if it's a special occasion or something like that. But very. uh, Paul Paul interestingly enough uh, contrasts uh, the the preaching really that the world desires and what God calls for um, in 1 Corinthians 1, and you're familiar with this passage, he says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Um, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God, 
for the foolishness of God is wiser than man and the weakness of God is stronger than man. And I think that really sums up the means of grace of preaching. That from the pulpit, there is an empowerment that the Holy Spirit gives to his people, to God's people, through the preaching of the word from the pulpit. And and I think that's important for us to not only realize, but take advantage of. Um, So, we we look at the the church um, and kind of have different understandings in our modern world, different motives and players. um, And particularly, I think, We've seen it in the last few years. A lot of of uh, churches have tended to blend their their politics and religion uh, into one somewhat unusual union. Um, uh, or you've also seen it. Uh, there are cultural examples of this as well. But the church really calls us to preach God's word and our common uh, binding factor is the word of God preaching forth the gospel of Christ and Christ crucified. That, That preaching the cross is, sounds simple, but it's the, it says it's the power and the wisdom of God. The herald preachers of Christ continue to be its primary channel for the modern world. So, um, hopefully, I've got to go across to you that how important the pulpit is, and hopefully we, we see it that here at, at Trinity Reformed. Um, any questions or thoughts real quick before I move on to sacraments? Okay. Um, secondly, uh, we want to look at, at sacraments. Uh, when we talk about word and sacrament, we're actually talking about sacrament with a capital S. These are, are uh, the sacraments are seen as, 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 beside preaching, we see as the primary means of grace that God uses in his body. And again, that's why you will often hear us talk about word and sacrament. And really, the scripture indicates that those are two essential things for the true church to be practicing is preaching the word of God clearly from the, from the pulpit and rightly administering the sacraments. Um, so preaching is not the only means of grace. Um, we're provided with this visible help called the sacraments. Um, in our day and age, uh, uh, some Christians are kind of kind of put off by the word sacrament because it sort of sounds like uh, some very uh, superstitious or almost mystical kind of thing. Um, but the word really comes from a New Testament uh, word for it's actually a, a Latin uh, translation of the word for mystery. Um, And Paul, um, speaking as a minister of the word and an apostle, wrote, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. That's 1 Corinthians 4.1. 
Um, so he's saying that we're stewards of the mysteries of God and certainly involves the stewardship of the gospel, yet Paul spoke of, a, of, a, of mysteries plural. Um, this could include the gospel in whether we read it or hear it, um, or it's presented to us in some other unique way, but primarily through preaching. Um, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 92, defines a sacrament as a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are presented, are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. That's quite a mouthful, right? So, uh, defines, it defines a sacrament where it says, what is a sacrament? defines the sacrament as a holy ordinance instituted by Christ firstly, wherein by sensible signs and by sensible, um, firstly, they're holy ordinances, okay? Uh, means that they're set apart. Uh, but secondly, they're instituted by Christ, and it, and it can be said that Christ is the living word of God instituted that he instituted many sacraments, but I think what we really mean is many ordinances. Um, because really, uh, he instituted really only two actual sacraments um, within the church, and, and we see that in, in the way that baptism and the Lord's Supper are set apart in parallel to what we see under the Old Covenant with circumcision and Passover. Um, so, he especially instituted two sacraments, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so, we want to we look at those a little bit separately each and get, get some uh, idea of a little bit uh, in Reformed and Covenantal uh, churches, you'll see a somewhat different, um, at least than I was raised with, the church that that my parents became believers in, and we were in for many years, and it, it's the same denom- non-denomination that my wife's family is through, but um, uh, they hold a very different uh, understanding of the sacraments. They still see baptism and the Lord's Supper as the only two, and I think evangelical Christianity in the West primarily sees those as the only two sacraments. But there are different views of those, and we, we're probably, all have come from traditions that are outside of probably the, the Reformed understanding um, of what what we would practice here. No, what's that? And they don't usually call them. Although it kind of it it sometimes depends on who you're talking to and and what area of the country you're in. At least from what I have found. So the the catechism calls sacraments sensible. Okay, they use the word sensible and. And normally we're used to using the word sensible to mean, oh, it makes sense, right? Well, that's not the word as they're using it here. It's, it, it's not because they make sense, but because they're sensory. In other words, are, we, we uh, apprehend them by our senses. 
God not only provides the gospel through the audible preaching of his word, which is a sense, but through other sensory means. He caters not only to our sinfulness, but also to our creatureliness, if you will. Such means can be seen, smelled, taste, touch. All of those senses that we have are connected to who we are. Uh, and in a way, we were just talking about the great divorce and, and how uh, uh, Lewis uh, spoke of, of the, the sensory perception of heaven being so much more pronounced than that of hell. And and the difference being striking. And really, uh, it's a a true representation that we're reminded of our spiritual benefits through that sensory perception in the sacraments. Um, They connect to our creatureliness. Besides being sensible, um, uh, you'll hear us use the terminology that the sacraments are are signs and seals. Um, signs represent something. They're not the thing, but they represent the thing. So you'll see, uh, driving down the road, um, you'll see a funny-looking black squiggly line with an arrow on it, and you'll automatically understand, oh, it's not going to be a straight road anymore. It's going to be a crooked road or a corner or, or what have you. That that's a kind of a crass representation of, of sign. Uh, signs represent something else. Um, they're pictures that describe realities that are conveyed. So the reality of that curve is, if you continue to drive straight, you're going to crash. Okay. There's a reality conveyed there, but yet the sign isn't the thing. Uh, That sign is not actually the curve, but it clearly represents it. So we are appealed to by our eyes in these pictures. But it also calls these sacraments, they're not just signs it calls them seals they confirm the realities they represent in other words they're they're kind of like the official stamp um, on the realities that are represented they're God's stamp they assure us of God's grace the the sign of baptism um, uh, a, a good example I think of that is uh, when Martin Luther uh, was sometimes, uh, uh, he would get in these um, where he thought, either thought or in reality the devil was attacking him, um, he would yell at him, get away from me, Satan, I've been baptized. Okay, He, he wasn't speaking for some kind of incantation. He wasn't trying to say that baptism was salvific. What he was saying is, I have been sealed by God's grace and it is represented in my baptism. And so, um, they assure us of God's grace to us. Paul reminded us that Abraham 
received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. We read that this morning in Sunday school. Um, While he was still uncircumcised, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal, as an assurance. Um, Not only was it a sign of the covenant, it was a seal. Um, Sacraments function as means of grace. This is what the catechism means by applied. it, It talks about being applied. There's a spiritual connection between the form the sacrament takes and the reality behind it. Um, This is called, uh, not so strangely, the sacramental union. Okay? So, that spiritual connection between the form that the sacrament takes and the reality that it represents is called the sacramental union. Now, how close is this connection between sign and reality? Well, uh, these sacraments are for believers. So the reality is, as Abraham believed and was counted righteous unto God, and then was circumcised as a sign or a seal of the covenant, um, we have that receiving by faith by believers. They're not for the rest of the world. Uh, now, this is one where, place where we have this large disagreement with the Roman Catholic Church um, that they hold to seven sacraments, and one of them is marriage, which they will agree is a... a Uh, institution or a sacrament for everyone, yet uh, it's appropriated as a sacrament. I'm not sure how they align that, but I know that they do. But um, the Westminster Shorter Catechism here in in, uh, Question and Answer 91 explains a little bit why this is important. This is probably a little clearer. The sacraments become effectual means of salvation, not from the virtue in them, or in him that does administer them, okay? But only by the blessing of Christ and the working of his spirit in them, and that by faith receive them. So, again, the example of Abraham in his circumcision, um, it was a effectual means uh, of grace um, that was the sign and seal of that thing being represented, um, and it doesn't depend on either the virtue within the person receiving them or in the person administering them. So, for instance, if you're baptized, uh, as an example, by someone who later is uh, found to be an unbeliever and, and rejects Christ, um, that doesn't negate your baptism. Um, or the same thing with the Lord's Supper. So, uh, if someone's uh, shown to be a, a, an, a, a, um, an apostate in some fashion uh, that has uh, brought to you the, the body and blood of the Lord and the Lord's Supper, that doesn't negate that sacrament. Um, because it's not something in 
the person that it administers or something in the virtue of the, of the person receiving. Okay, apart from faith, the water of baptism simply is the removal of dirt from the body. First Peter 3.21 says exactly that. Um, and apart from believing the bread and wine of communion is simply bread and wine. That's why we have no problem with the kids eating the bread of communion after uh, uh, the, the service is over. It, it's not as if there's something in the bread, or you know, we don't we don't see it as as uh, uh, being eternally uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for consecrated. Um, so. When these sensible signs and seals are received by faith, they become connected to the spiritual realities. So only then do the sacraments become anything effectual in the means of God's grace to us. So, um, any quite, we're going to talk a little bit more in depth here about baptism and the Lord's Supper because they are so important. But uh, any thoughts? Questions? Okay. Um, So, let's talk about baptism first. Um, This is sometimes called the gracious entrance to the body of Christ. The sacrament of baptism. Um, (laughs) This is probably one of the most debated uh, and and contested points of doctrine in all of Christendom. In fact, even among Reformed churches, um, you have the the credo-baptistic uh, churches like Reformed Baptists uh, and the Pado churches, which would include most Reformed churches other than the, than the Baptist churches and a few uh, independent Reformed churches um, that practice uh, Pado-baptism. Um, so the sacrament of baptism even though it's considered a sacrament there are a lot of points therein that are hotly disputed in fact if some of the best uh, discussions on this if you get a chance to get on to Ligonier um, I, I think one of the best ones is uh, where Sproul and MacArthur are, are at a, one of the conferences and I don't remember which one it is but you can find it um, discuss the the differences um, in the, their understanding of baptism. So th- this was one that's that's fraught with with complexities uh, and a lot of misunderstandings. I think, um, and even in what baptism represents, there really in baptism we th- see kind of three different headings, if you will, we see purification, this idea of purification, initiation, and who's to receive it, who are the recipients of it. So those three um, subtopics, if you will, under baptism, this gracious entrance, um, first it's seen as, as purifying. So purification involves what? Washing. In fact, sometimes it's called the washing of purification. We we see purification 
rituals within um, uh, both Judaism and within some uh, particular Eastern forms of Christianity. Um, Coptic Christians practice this whole litany of, of ritual washings. Uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church does as well, but not to the extent, for instance, the, the uh, Russian Orthodox or Eastern Orthodox does. Um, so, this purification or washing, uh, you know, we, we wash our hands in order to make them clean, but uh, remember when uh, the, the Jews were uh, getting on to Christ, they were saying, uh, you know, what is it with your disciples? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, this, they, they weren't saying they've got dirt on their hands and it's not very sanitary. I mean, that's what we would likely think. But that's not what they were saying. They're saying they're ritually unclean because they're not washing their hands before they partake of food. So, um, washing, this idea of washing to make things clean isn't simply in our scientific context of it. It's ritual purification. Um, interestingly enough, um, uh, I think I told you about this guy that wrote this paper about uh, 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 Second Period Temple. He's got a very narrow uh, uh, profession of scholarship that he does out of Ariel University in Tel Aviv. And I happen to read one of his papers, and I've, I've been on his reading list ever since. He tries to get me to read everything. I, I, I kid and say I'm probably like one of seven people who read his papers. But uh, he uh, actually wrote a very good paper about how Greek uh, ritual purification um, impacted uh, post-exilic Judaism or, or Second Temple period Judaism up through the time of Christ. Uh, in fact, uh, he argues that um, most of the ritual washings or purifications had a very Hellenistic or Greek um, basis to them uh, that you don't really see in the Old Testament. Um, so, when we talk about bi- baptism and purification, obviously, you know, the heritage that we see in the Lord's Supper from Passover and from circumcision to baptism in the New Testament, we see this washing aspect because along with, in the Old Testament, one of the ways that the Gentile would enter the community or the covenant of Israel was to go through a particular, uh, it was called Gentile baptism or Gentile purification or or washing. Um, And so it makes sense that when we see uh, there's a, a connection to that old covenant uh, understanding and administration that translates into the new covenant. This idea of washing is purifying. In the Old Testament, he commanded the priest to wash before entering the temple or tabernacle. Um, uh, he directed the Levites to be sprinkled with the water of purification. He incorporated the use of water into cleansing his people from Leprosy, all kinds of things in Leviticus. You'll see those washings um, and and disease in general. Um, and then Hebrews nine ten referred to these as various washings. 
but the the Greek literally calls them baptisms. Okay, that's baptism or baptizmo is one of those words that is taken from the Greek language and used in specific ways by the apostles. It doesn't necessarily mean just what the Greek language defined it as meaning. So it's one of those words we have to be very careful of using uh, just by referencing what the word meant in the lexicon. Um, it meant something very specific to the to the apostles and, and what they were preaching. And this washing aspect was one of it. Um, if you look at, at baptism, we come out of a heritage that only... Uh, only believers and only um, um, uh, immersion are I mean, very strictly. In fact, it's a it, it, it's a regeneral baptism uh, that is preached. And so, um, interestingly enough, though the the idea of baptism, um, I, I did a, a quite a study a while back, uh, several years ago, on this and found. One of the earliest references to baptism is about a a fourth century uh, uh, Hellenistic general uh, taking his soldiers through a waterfall from one place to another, and it talks about them being baptized in the waterfall. It had nothing to do with purification, nothing to do with ritual. It was just saying they got wet from going into the waterfall. <laughs> Uh, so you have to be very careful, but the, the apostles are careful about how they use this word. While some Christians argue that, that the word baptism necessarily means immersion, um, it, it, it's used in such a more broad way, uh, particularly in the Septuagint or the Greek version of the Old Testament. It's used in connection with... Um, uh, the idea of rebirth. Uh, Ezekiel wrote his prophecy during the exile when the temple, uh, with its purification washing, was destroyed with its idea of these various washings. And um, when Ezekiel looks at Israel's uh, return and the prophecy of hope and um, he he writes, I will sprinkle you with water and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Um, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And we see that um, this existing vocabulary of this sprinkling coupled with the language of new heart and spirit in this rebirth and purification uh, really show the the idea of purification and reality that would apply to God's people uh, in the church. And we saw it then in John 3 when Jesus is, is speaking uh, about to a confused Nicodemus uh, that he needed to be baptized with water in the spirit. Jesus admonished him about his ignorance. Uh, a teacher of Israel should understand from the prophets these things because they're foretold. Ezekiel 36 talks about teacher of Israel should have understood this connection between the sign of water and the reality of the new life and this purification. Um, and um, Paul referred to this as the washing of regeneration renewal by the Holy Spirit. Um, 
And uh, the writer of Hebrews urged his readers, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's Hebrews 10.22. So the purpose of washing was for God's people to remove our sin from before God. So you can see the idea of the sensory experience and the reality that it conveys here. Remove all this. This aspect of purification focuses on the need for a repentance, a change, turning away from sin. Um, John's baptism was actually called a, a baptism of repentance, calling the people of God uh, a baptism of, of forgiveness of sin calling them to repent and be forgiven of their sin. It was administered to Israel, and this is the important thing, it's not the same as Christian baptism, it was administered to Israel in preparation for the coming Messiah. Not surprisingly, Christian baptism is also accompanied by repentance. It includes repentance, but that's not its only purpose. In his Pentecost sermon, the Apostle Peter declared, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's Acts 2, 38. Um, so that automatically leads us to the question, does baptism actually cause the forgiveness of sins? That's a legitimate question. The answer is that it doesn't, but it's closely associated with it. Okay, don't, for, don't forget about the sign and the seal aspect of the sacraments. Okay, this is, uh, I might mention here, uh, this is another place where, where we have a huge disagreement with Roman Catholicism in their doctrine of the sacraments in general. Um, their understanding of the sacrament is that literally they use the phrase, in the doing it is done. Um, And so, literally, that's why when you are baptized as an infant, they call it an inpouring or infusion of grace. It's literally like an IV of grace, if you will. They wouldn't, I shouldn't say that, but uh, strike that. Uh, They wouldn't agree with that, but um, that's a picture that, comes to my mind. Uh, it doesn't cause forgiveness, but it, it has a very close association. Um, and that, this is evidence in other places, particularly in Acts, as we've been going through Acts. Um, he declared, Peter declared, the apostle declared in that um, uh, uh, chapter 3 sermon, uh, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. So this idea of repentance, um, with that, repentance without baptism is expressed as the means of receiving forgi- forgiveness. Um, further along, a certain uh, jailer from Philippi asked the Apostle Paul, what must I do to be saved? What was Paul's answer? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Faith 
the flip side of repentance was the instrument of salvation for the jailer and his family. Baptism then followed faith, not as an instrument, but as a sacrament. Just like circumcision and Abraham. Okay, and that really, kind of this idea of purification brings us to initiation. Um, that besides purification, Christian baptism also serves uh, as a sacrament of initiation. And this is probably a point of commonality with most uh, Bible-believing churches. Um, inclusion in some form of covenantal union. Um, so, baptism is this initiation or inclusion in the covenant and admission into the visible church. Remember, we talked about the visible and invisible church. Um, the Lord expressed this to Abraham through the giving of the Old Testament counterpart, which was circumcision. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. We just talked we just looked at that this morning. Um, so circumcision became the sign and seal of entering into God's covenant community. Um, with God separating his people from the world and calling them to a life of holiness. Okay, They're already his people. God separated his people from the world and called them to the life of holiness. That Again, that picture that we see in the Exodus is indispensable indescribable. I, I, I don't think how any way it could be clearer there. Here the outward sign corresponds to the inward reality of regeneration called the circumcision of the heart. We see that uh, actually in the Old Testament both by uh, Moses and by Jeremiah the prophet and again in Romans, Romans 2.28. The sign however emphasized curse as well as blessing so you have this understanding, and we're actually going to talk about this next week uh, in uh, Sunday school, but um, it was not only a uh, sign of blessing, but it was also the idea of the cursor being cut off. Okay, um, The recipient um, could be fully cut off if he does not... Um, if he does not abide the covenant. Therefore, the reality of circumcision was twofold. Signified and sealed new life or, on the flip side, uh, death. And that, and that was that whole idea of covenant, cutting of the covenant. So, um, the circumcised community, however, was intended to be a light to the Gentiles, which failed miserably uh, over and over again as we talked this morning rather than evidencing the light they chased after the darkness even though they were circumcised their hearts were uncircumcised Jeremiah 9 uh, talks about this so by the first century AD circumcision had become essentially associated with cultural Judaism in fact we've been seeing that in, in Acts um, and we talked about it in, in Sunday school in our, our study of, of uh, second period, uh, second temple period Judaism, uh, that um, this idea of being a Jew um, through these these 
ceremonial aspects, including circumcision, um, had been so heightened with the recovery of Judaism by the Hasmoneans during that intertestamental period um, from uh, about uh, 168 to about 63 AD, where the Jews had self-rule, that uh, many of these things that we have, uh, for instance, Paul was accused of, I think uh, Pastor mentioned it last week, um, you'll see in, in Maccabees, which talks about the, the Maccabean revolt, uh, were the things that the, the uh, Hasmonean, sort of the Maccabees, had uh, accused the, the uh, people of Israel of, and, the, and the, the associated Gentiles uh, with corrupting the law of Moses and, and ignoring the law of Moses and not circumcising their children. And so these same things are this the same type of call to to uh, uh, to identify so completely uh, with the ceremonial aspect that really it, Roman Catholicism is, is a mirror of that. In, in the doing, it is done uh, because we are Abraham's descendants, and because we've been circumcised, we're, we're good to go. So, um, so his light brought the uncircumcised Gentiles into the house of God, being us, as we see in Ephesians 2. Consequently, there's no longer this distinction. Uh, in fact, in Galatians 3.28, there's no longer any distinction between Jew and Gentile, for both um, are, are uh, of one body now. Uh, whether they are circumcised or not, they have the circumcision of the heart. Um, they're justified by faith in Christ, which again harkens us back to the promise of Abraham. So his accomplishment also fulfilled the Old Testament sacrament of circumcision. And he wrote, Paul wrote, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This is Colossians 2. In this text, the apostle was describing a different circumcision. First, it involved the union of Christ with his people as God's union with his people. In the Old Testament, he undertook the work of redemption as their federal head and they were included in him. So we were included in Christ. Uh, interestingly enough, as Abraham was included in Christ. Second, this circumcision was performed without hands, it says. So, um, this is uh, that passage in uh, Mark 14 where where he says, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Um, I think that's a good um, contrast contrasting man-made physical structure of the temple made with hands with one that God himself constructed constructed basically the body of the resurrected body of Christ um, that's why he, he is called our temple uh, in a similar way the physical circumcision done by man is contrasted with the circumcision that was done by God himself uh, of the circumcision of the heart uh, so the cutting off of Christ on the cross 
uh, is really that aspect of the the blessing or the curse, and Christ took the curse. So uh, that is that full cutting off, Christ on the cross in place of his covenant-breaking people. So what does this have to do with baptism? Um, Paul continued uh, in Colossians 2, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. There's that connection. In this passage, circumcision, in him you were circumcised, corresponds to baptism, having been buried with him in baptism. The former points forward, the latter points backward to the cross, the circumcision of Christ. This is supported in other places in in the Gospels. I have baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Christ representing his people. Um, So since Christians live on the other side of the cross, there's no longer a need for the ceremonial aspect of uh, of the administration of the covenant Baptism has replaced the old sacrament as a sign and seal of covenant inclusion. So it's that inclusiveness or in, in, in um, culcating we are brought into the covenant. This is why Jesus commanded his disciples to go forth and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28. God's name is being written upon them in water as a mark of ownership, that sign and seal, like circumcision of old, baptism involves an outward sign coupled to the inward reality of inclusion God's people. First Corinthians 12 uh, is a little clear on that. Um, and lastly, recipients. And this is probably the most uh, disputed part other than mode of baptism. Who's to receive? Uh, understanding um, how how are we on time? What got about a half hour, right? I'm gonna we're gonna be about ten minutes over today. Did did I send you guys a text yesterday about that? Okay. Um, so who's to who's to receive? The the nature of baptism really says who should be who should be baptized. Who who can be baptized? Uh, is this baptism? Is this sacrament? Is this sign and seal of the spiritual reality only for mature individuals who personally confess Christ? Um, and by far, this is the majority report today in Western evangelicalism, um, or we call this credo baptism. This is the common answer uh, that you would hear probably anywhere uh, other than a Reformed or Presbyterian or, or uh, uh, I guess, Method, Methodists are, are paid of Baptist too, and Episcopal. Those are primarily historical rather than doctrinal. Um, they also seem to have some biblical support at first glance, but in the New Testament, again in Acts, uh, uh, it's interesting that the New Testament examples, there are people coming to faith, being baptized, 
uh, and then at the same time, yet baptism in the New Testament doesn't only happen to believers, um, it happens to families and households. So you see that I, I think as closely regarded together as the Old and New Covenant and that transition between the two, I think we need to ask a couple of questions. It shouldn't surprise us that God has always dealt with his people in a familial way. Um, I think that we can look at several things here from Scripture and and, uh, see that that baptism is for believers and their children. Um, in the Old Testament, God made his covenant with Abraham and his children through circumcision, the sign of circumcision. Abraham believed before he was circumcised. In Romans 4, we saw that. But his children were circumcised before they believed. Same promise, same covenant. In the Old Covenant, God's promises involve believers and their children. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon them, my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, out of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. That's in Isaiah. As it turns out, the new covenant uses similar language. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God shall call unto himself. Um, The latter passage not only shows this continuity between the two, but expands on the former to show the inclusion of Gentiles. And I think we see a flash of that um, inclusion throughout the Old Covenant with the peripheral inclusion of the Gentiles uh, to this, to Israel, that they were to be a light to the Gentiles. There was appropriation made uh, for the inclusion of Gentiles to come to Israel. So, Admittedly, it's true that that New Testament baptism was often preceded by faith. Um, That usually happened in the context of missions where pagans were being converted uh, and brought into the covenant community. The principle, however, still stands that the covenant promises are for believers and their children. Um, The Bible views children as part of the covenant community. Um, had always and continues to in the context of the New Covenant very young children were present we know from from scripture at covenant gatherings for when there were covenant renewal um, renewals in in Deuteronomy the second Brian the second reading of the law uh, with Joshua there were children present even infants Jesus uh, received the children as his people, Luke 18. Uh, while Paul stated that children of one believing parent are set apart to God, that's 1 Corinthians 7. In his letters to the Ephesians and Colossians, Paul addressed children as members of the church along with their parents. 
Um, this doesn't mean that they're automatically saved. Now, this is, again, where there's a divergence. Uh, they're included with as God's people within the context of the covenant community and therefore subject to the sign and seal of inclusion. Okay? We see that under the old covenant, yet we know circumcision did not save in and of itself. In the, in the new covenant, we see that baptism does not save in and of itself. It points to that reality. So, in light of what we've seen, it shouldn't surprise us that that whole families were baptized. We see it in Acts 10, 16, um, 18, 1 Corinthians 1. Um, so what, what was the basis for baptisms? The answer is the faith of the head of the household. Just as Abraham's faith led to the circumcision of his household, um, so also the faith of these converts led to the baptism of their households. Cornelius is a good example. It's true that they do not specifically mean children. If you want to read some really good um, um, treatises on this, um, actually, I'll talk to me. Talk to, if you want to read some more on that, talk to me next week. I, I'll have some uh, a bibliography of some some good ones for you. Um, so, obviously, these households probably included people who were capable of believing. The, the scripture doesn't uh, like go from one to the next and say, uh, this formula is for you and then you and then you and you. The very fact that the households mentioned as a household supports the continu- the, this covenant continuity from old to new rather than saying... There's a discontinuity here. Um, Peter and Paul both use this idea of covenantal continuity when it comes to this conversion. So the new covenant is more inclusive than the old, includes Gentiles. In the new covenant, unbelieving spouses, it says in 1 Corinthians 7.14, are sanctified by believing ones. And women are baptized along with men in Galatians 3. If this is true, then it doesn't make sense to exclude those who were included over the old co- in the old covenant, and that that that's a powerful argument. That is a very powerful argument that the new covenant is more inclusive. Yet we, uh, in the case of of a doctrine of credo baptism, want to say it's not legitimate to include children in the covenant that uh, in the sign of the covenant that it is doesn't doesn't hold Right. No longer yeah. do I the, deal with families in this way, but now it is up to every individual person to by himself do this. And, right. And you don't see that anywhere. Right. Rather, you see the confirming of the opposite. Right. You, you see the you see the continuity confirmed, and that you know 
again, if you take the whole of the book of Hebrews, uh, making the distinctions in the covenant, you would have thought that of all places would have been somewhere where that discontinuity would have been highlighted. Either that or in the narratives of Acts, um, one of those two places um, would have been spelled out clear. And to be honest, that was, that was my last hurdle to covenantal theology, because in the in the religion of, of of Christianity, in the sect we were raised in, or the denomination we were raised in, um, it's like the central theme of everything is believers' baptism by immersion only, and it's salvific. Um, so refusing to apply circumcision to children really means breaking the covenant and in the Old Testament that was that was death and I mean that's why the Hasmoneans were so uh, forceful about that aspect of the, the gentilization of of the Jewish people uh, in the in the uh, in, in the third century into the second I'm sorry in the second century BC uh, Moses almost died because he didn't circumcise. So say, yeah, Moses almost died because he didn't circumcise his son in Exodus. So um, his Egyptian wife. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? Well, this is a, you know, um, I, I think that really shows the seriousness of administering the sacrament <coughs> to the proper recipients. And you know, again, I'll say this was the last hurdle for me. Um, because not because of scripture, but because of background of uh, the, the, those uh, historical connections in my family. Uh, you know, uh, it wasn't because the scripture wasn't clear or history wasn't clear. It was because uh, it was muddied by my experience, and I think that's a good. We, we always have to be careful of that. Um, and, and two. Um, I think there's a really important historical aspect as well. You find no, absolute no mention of of not baptizing infants until writings in this into the second century, and and even that is an affirmation. Um, of the baptism of children, um, so it the way it's written is normative. It's not as if it's an aberration. So it's like this, it didn't even come up for a hundred years, and so now it doesn't really have to be explained. And interestingly enough, the history of the Christian Church. Up until um, post-Reformation and really into the 18th century and revivalism, in the 19th century particularly, was there even any discussion of of uh, credo baptism uh, in a, in a serious doctrinal fashion? I mean, some of the Anabaptists brought it up uh, in the uh, in the uh, uh, about 60 years after the, the uh, beginning of the Reformation, um, some of the Baptistic churches that came out of 
uh, of the Reformation, although some of the connections there aren't real clear. Uh, and so it wasn't until much later that it became a, a doctrinal debate. All churches baptized their infants, whether they were were Roman Catholic churches or or they were Protestant churches. And it was not even an issue that came up during the Reformation. Had, if that were a, this major change, you would have thought it would have been a raging doctrinal issue, at least by the Reformation, that it would have been a point of contention and it was like barely a mention. And no, that's not scripture, but that's a powerful argument of normative practice. And just because it's normative obviously doesn't make it right, but uh, yeah, from such the, an early... One of the reasons that you read, though, of yeah. why it was performed is not what we would yeah. claim. Doctrinally, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like Augustine, he had a big hang-up on regenerate baptism. And uh, some of the early church fathers had some really strange ideas on baptism. Uh, Irenaeus was one of them. Um, and uh, was, was it uh, Constantine? Yeah, it was Constantine the first that... He wanted to wait until the very last second of his life right. to be baptized. Right. I mean, that was kind of common too because of this salvific connection. Okay, so the Lord's Supper, um, unless we have other questions or comments about baptism, I'm going to rush along into the Lord's Supper. Shouldn't rush, but going to. Um, um, the Lord's Supper is a sacrament of union and communion. And that's why sometimes we call it communion um, with Christ. Um, as such, it includes an element of mystery. Uh, remember we talked about that sacramental union and, and that word literally mean mystery. Um, it's easy, just as we see, see have seen with baptism, um, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper was one of those early things that really got doctrinally messed up. Uh, And because of the mystery involved and the the divisions within Christendom and superstition and all kinds of things, our sinful nature basically... um, Uh, the biblical understanding of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper became really warped uh, into things that were not scriptural. Um, Really, in in order to understand the biblical understanding of the sacrament, um, we really have to look at the Old Testament types because of this continuity of covenant um, you really have to look at type and fulfillment here because the New Testament practice that we have of the Lord's Supper is significantly uh, different as circumcision and baptism are, um, even though they involve some of the same sensory uh, practices 
um, there's quite a, a difference between the two. There's a connection, but there's not an identity there. Um, so this transition to the New Testament practice um, has some of the same questions as we have with baptism, uh, participation, um, who, who can participate. Um, we in, in Presbyterian churches um, and most Reformed churches do what's called fencing the table. Um, that's why uh, normally, and particularly if we have people there we don't know, um, it's common and usual for us um, for uh, Zach when he's uh, administering the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to include that last portion of, of uh, 1 Corinthians 11 uh, on, on judging rightly and uh, on if you are not a believer, uh, don't participate. Um, it's really a warning. When we talk about fencing the table, we're, we're not saying this is our table and you can't come and join us. It, it's really the opposite. It's saying... This table is open to all who are the Lord's, but if you're not, um, it's a good idea. In fact, it's necessary that you don't participate. Um, so the gospel... I, I was just going just to add to that. Maybe you were going to say that. You know, we, we started our association as a church together in URC, and URC recognized they, they term it as close communion as opposed to closed communion which is, which is practiced right. uh, like uh, Lutheran yeah Missouri Synod, uh, Minnesota Synod yeah. Lutheran yeah. practice what are called closed, closed communion so whether it, so if you're not a member as I understand that right. if you're not a member of that body then yep. we don't hold to that uh, level right. of and yeah, so uh, in the PCA, I would say pretty universally um, holds to an open communion uh, with the restriction that we do fence the table. And I've not been in a PCA church that didn't. I don't ever remember. Some level of fencing? Some level, yeah. I didn't, did you want to address that, Zach? Okay. Um, so I, so I've experienced certain things that, like at the, um, it depends, I guess, on how you use the term, because I've heard, uh, so in, your, in what you're saying, Brian, with closed communion, you're saying if, they, if you're not a member of the church, you can't partake. A member of that local body. Yeah, yeah. that local body, right? Yeah. Um, but I've also... Um, seen like in, specifically in the URC, they are more. Uh, they don't just give the warning to those, but they also you're also not allowed to partake unless right. you have spoken with and basically had like a little interview with the elders before right. if you're just visiting. Right. Yeah. That, and that's, that's also clo- that's called also close communion. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Close, close rather than closed. Yeah. They they and there's. It's interestingly enough, I, and I, I do like how we do it. Um, I, I really do. Uh, though I understand why the URC practices that they do as well. 
they're they're putting kind of a where where it's in, implied that if you are they where if you're not right in the church, <laughs> then you shouldn't be taking communion. That's, right. That's the, that's the that's our implication, but they do it a lot more. By forcefully, <laughs> forcefully, by, 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 by an interview and ensuring that you're not under church discipline, right. which would be definitely right. Drinking condemnation. But there, there, there's a good paper uh, by a, a ruling elder in the OPC. It was actually printed in whatever their, their magazine's called. I don't remember. But um, did I send that to you guys? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, on why. Uh, open communion and fencing the table rather than close communion uh, is scriptural um, because the impetus is not on on the elders or the pastor to exclude you from the table. We don't find that in scripture. It's upon you and the judgment is God's. And so... I've always read it as a, basically as a, there may be a, a responsibility to give a warning, warning but, right. but the added thing where they go and don't let you unless yeah. they approve you seems, I think, going too far. Yeah, and and that's the point of, of he wrote very well uh, scripturally presented that, yeah, yeah, we, we definitely agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, as far as, as type and fulfillment, the Gospels present the Last Supper as a Passover, one of sacrificial meals of the Old Testament. Um, anyway, it involved sacrificing and eating a lamb and spreading the blood on the doorframe of home as a propitiation. We see that, that type there. Um, the Passover, however, um, wasn't the only sacrificial meal. There were many sacrificial meals. Some of them were actually called feasts, sacrificial feasts in the Old Testament. The Passover, however, wasn't the only one. And the peace offering of the Mosaic Law involved sacrificing part of an animal, giving a portion to the priest and eating the rest. That's one you find in Leviticus. Um, So in that way, God's people enjoyed this communion with the Lord through the priesthood. And that seems to be one of the Passovers that is in mind in this type and fulfillment in in the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. (coughs) These types and shadows ultimately, as we know, find their fulfillment in Christ as the Scripture calls him the true Passover, the Lamb who turns away the wrath of God and fulfills that entire sacrificial system as we see in Hebrews. So the Old Testament was also concerned with the the concept not only of that communion but of spiritual feeding. Um, After delivering his people from slavery in Egypt, God provided manna from heaven uh, to sustain them during their wilderness experience. Um, uh, and that's in Exodus 16. While his people didn't always appreciate uh, the miraculous bread that he provided, uh, they received it until they entered Canaan. So 
that was an aspect, this, this continual feeding of the people it is really a, a type of, of that aspect of God's nurturing and this, this graciousness of God and this means of grace um, where it transcends to that spiritual aspect, the, the physical sign um, gives us that opportunity of, of strengthening, of spiritual strengthening. So uh, in the New Testament, Jesus, after miraculously feeding this large group of people, refers to himself as the true manna in John 6, refers to him as the true manna who gives life to the world. Um, uh, in, in fact, the imagery there it gets extremely radical, if you will. Uh, he says, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. So that's, that's John 6 again. So, that really bring, how do we understand that language? Uh, uh, interestingly enough, the, the Romans, one of the, um, uh, basically one of the accusations against Christians that they had was that they were cannibals. Um, uh, the other one was that they were immoral uh, and atheists. So, not strange. Um, so, what does that have to do with the Lord's Supper? It's interesting that Jesus used a similar language at the last Passover with his disciples. He explained to them, this is my body, which is given for you. Same kind of idea here. This cup is poured out for you. It is poured out as the new covenant in my blood. So, he's making that distinction again. That his his flesh, bread, his blood, wine. Um, so the question is asked: Is this the Lord's Supper becoming, or is it the body of Christ? Is it literally the body of Christ? Um, Roman Catholicism says yes. Uh, the Roman Catholics believe that the bread and wine are transformed into the actual body and blood. All kinds of rituals around that. But, uh, in fact, they go so far as to say that the Mass is an unbloody sacrifice of Christ over and over and over and over again. Whereas, obviously, the Scripture says once for all. I'm not sure how they get around that exactly. Um, uh so this understanding would make Jesus, what he said uh, would be, this is becoming my body. This is transubstantiating into my body. In fact, that's the name of what they call, what Roman Catholicism sees the, the Eucharist as, is transubstantiation. The substance crosses the boundary. Transubstantiation. On the other hand, and Lutherans uh, and don't use this term with Lutherans because they don't like it. But uh, 
this is what is normally termed consubstantiation. Um, Again, transubstantiations, Roman Catholics are okay with that. Consubstantiations, Lutherans are not okay with that. I've never understood. Yeah, I have. Yeah. I looked looked that up and I still didn't understand what I read. Well, (laughs) they teach that Christ's body (laughs) and blood (laughs) are. (laughs) Huh? (laughs) Welcome, yeah. (laughs) In, with, and under the elements. Okay, I can understand transubstantiation, it's just flat out alchemy (laughs) okay but consubstantiation is so strange i'm i have read so many so many lutheran writers on this that my head spins i i don't know that they understand what it is they don't mind that Huh? They don't they mind. mind no, they don't mind. <laughs> isn't that, that's that's the, kind of the point, isn't it? Yeah. The sponge, kind of the like the that the not changing the sponge, but the yeah. water's in and yeah. all through it. Kind yeah, of it thing. resides underneath. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and basically, this theory, uh, rather than changing to, would be accompanies my body. In other words. Uh, the, the bread and wine accompany my actual substance. Right. So, so it's not, still a... bread and body. Right, right. Wine and blood. Right. It, Maybe. To me, it's not clear. <laughs> so, um, and then on the other end, you have Jesus' words understand, understood as figurative. Um, in Deuteronomy 16.3, said, Unleavened bread is called the bread of affliction. Um, the the bread didn't cause the Israelites' affliction. Rather, it was a representation of their affliction. So um, we can we can see in a similar way Jesus' words in John six here and Luke twenty two as understood to be a, in a figurative way that his words are figurative. But does that mean they're only symbols? And this was the argument that there are those who say it's only figurative. It's just a memorial. Um, There's no substance, trans or cons or anything else to it. It's figurative substance. (laughs) Okay. Um, and, And this is what... Again, I would say most modern evangelicals would believe it's some sort of simply memorial, uh, uh, figurative uh, sacrament. There's there's nothing else to it. Um, and Jesus used the words, do this in remembrance of me. But did he mean simply remembrance? So then why did he say, this is my body? And this was the, the quandary Luther was in, because he argued with Swingley, who basically held the memorial view, and that's what it's usually called, is this simply figurative, it's called the memorial view, um, that it was, Zwingli said it's just figurative. And Luther made, I think, a valid argument saying, then why did he say, this is my body. In fact, 
Luther got, as he did with a lot of things, got rather animated about it, banged his shoe on the table, and according to history. And um, so, was Jesus saying, "Well, it's just a a representation, and I'm actually a- absent in the sacrament"? Um, I don't think Scripture says that. I and, and I think here we can really look at Calvin because I think Calvin probably had uh, Calvin and Beza I think had that most scripturally clear and thought out understanding of what was meant and what is represented in scripture about this issue of substance in fact <laughs> it's interesting that when Calvin was arguing with Roman Catholics he wouldn't even use the word substance he refused to use the word substance but when he was talking to Zwingli or to Luther, Lutheran uh, believers he specifically used the word substance <laughs> Because he wanted them to understand that it, it isn't simply a memorial. It's not simply figurative. Um, he, in fact, Paul, you know, clearly in, in 1 Corinthians 10.16, he says the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And here the word that's translated participation is koinonia. And obviously we're familiar with that word from fellowship or or communal. Well, um, we often associate fellowship with a more subjective understanding or feeling. The New Testament really defines it objectively. Um, that fellowship is a state, an objective state. Um, one of the goals of the gospel, First um, John one three, it expresses unity and the joy and suffering with Christ and His people. That joining, that communion. Um, yet, um, then we have to ask the question about the whole relationship to Christ um, how can God's people have fellowship with their risen Savior because he is now now human and divine he cannot bodily be in multiple places at once he is in heaven at the Father's right hand bodily and we believe that he is is eternally human and divine and that that fellowship with him how is that going to work how, how does his body turn into some ubiquitous uh, trans substance or con substance um, doesn't make sense for one it violates a lot of, of doctrine but in uh, the way some people have gotten around it is just strange uh, but that's another Another rabbit trail. Um, so how do we... The, the answer is... And, and John Calvin really brings this home um, 
particularly in the institutes of the Christian religion, um, it, it's through the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit, who is Christ's presence in the world, we participate with the human nature of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is eternally united. And we see that in John 14, John 16. Um, so, remember it speaks not only of absence, but of worship. Um, it's part of that ceremonial aspect. It's a proclamation. Uh, we talk about um, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes in 1 Corinthians 11.26. It points to the future glory of God's people when we are bodily present with the risen Savior. Um, and so there is a spiritual union with the human nature of Christ through the Holy Spirit. And um, that that's why um, when when Calvin would speak to Lutherans and and uh, and the Reformed in, in uh, Geneva, that he would speak about substance. That uh, we uh, we fellowship, we commune with the substantive body of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, but yet, when he was speaking to Roman Catholics, which he knew would not understand or comprehend using the word substance, he refused to use that word um, because he knew it would be understood as, as some sort of, of transubstantial change. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I know we've run through that really fast, but um, any thoughts, questions? Um, there's a really good book um, uh, by Keith Matheson. Um, it it's not huge. It's I don't know 250 pages maybe. Um, it's, it's called um, the secondary title is Rec- reclaiming the oh, what's it called uh, this um, given given for you given for you reclaiming yeah Calvin's yeah Lord's reclaiming Lord's Calvin's doctrine of the Lord's Supper yeah. I know between us we'll figure. <laughs> uh, it's a really if you don't want to read everything Calvin had to say, which is quite extensive and kind of broken up over several places. Um, Keith Matheson's book on on it is very explanatory and very um, relevant, uh, especially if you've come from uh, a background as we we have. Um, so it's a, it's a, it a spiritual meal aspect of it. Right? What's that? The spirit, the spiritual meal. Yes. Spiritual, yes. Rather than just the right. It is remembering the, rather than just right. It's the sense. communal right. and the fellowship part in the objective sense that we are in communion not only with the people of God but with the risen Savior. Right. Uh, Spiritually, through our fellowship with the Holy Spirit. So, and we talked about the fencing of the of the table. Um, I, I think there are a few things that um, 
are good for us to remind people of, um, and, and that's would be our job as uh, normally Zach will administer the the sacraments. If not, uh, one of the elders will if Zach's gone. But um, I think it's good for us to remind people, even if it's everyone we know, um, that although the Lord's Supper is is a gracious gesture of God's communion with us, it does involve responsibility on our part. Um, um, you know, that we have to have that relationship first and foremost. And participation uh, requires more than just simply being baptized. Um, um, we have to... Um, it's also an ordinance. Uh, the sacrament is an ordinance of the church, and it follows that only those who are in uh, good and regular standing in a true church of Jesus Christ should be allowed to participate um, through conscience. And so I think it's good for us to re- remind people that they are also responsible, not only uh, that they are uh, graciously given opportunity, but there is a responsibility there. So, um, and, and it's kind of hard sometimes now, too, because of the, this whole issue of, of membership. Membership has kind of fallen on hard times in, in church churches, most evangelical churches today. I was just going to mention the larger catechism has really good oh, yeah. uh, section on pre- yeah. preparing oneself for. Yeah. I need to use it more. Yeah, it <laughs> really, uh, it really preparing does. Preparing yourself yeah. for the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Um. Um. So does um. Um. The Belgic Confession has the a good. Confession has a very good. Yeah. Those are solid. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Solid. Call it uh, representation. Yeah, I, 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 yeah th- those are. Y- you know, something else does is, I know it's huge and it's sometimes rambling, but Fisher's Catechism is, is it's almost an explanatory catechism of the Westminster Catechisms. <laughs> it's massive. It's, I don't know how many hundred questions it is, but it's huge. But they go into some very specific details Although it bears Fisher's name, the Erskine brothers actually uh, wrote a large part of that. They were Scots. What can we say? <laughs> so, um, so what's that? They are suspect. So only those who are capable like of. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Only those who are capable of discernment and self-examination really may participate in the sacrament legitimately. So um, that's why we include that 27 through 29 part in 1 Corinthians 11 where uh, Paul says, who, who, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the comfort of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of considering the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, not that the elders examine him, and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon themselves. So, you know, 
we can ask all kinds of questions in detail on this. It would raise how does one differentiate. But that is part of explanation and teaching from the administration of the sacraments. That's why we specifically, you will notice in our liturgy, have a teaching section um, at, at the beginning of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We, they're, they're, uh, almost always Zach will have a teaching uh, portion or whoever's administering the sacraments will have a teaching portion um, to more clearly explain various aspects of the sacrament. We've seen, uh, sadly, we've seen uh, observations, especially of communion, just so, be so mishandled over the last few decades. You know, that's just, there's, there's been derived almost have no aspect of God honoring yeah. elements to it. Yeah. I mean, not to say nothing of the of the more subtle doctrinal aspects of yeah, yeah just the the growths. Uh, so it's, it's, it was a real pleasure for me to see it to be administered. In oh, I know it's yeah, correctly. yeah. It it's more more than we could hope for. <laughs> um, so. You know, we basically will ask people to take inventory, really, um, before coming to the table. Um, and, of course, we always want, and as Calvin said, uh, of course it doesn't require perfection. If it did, none of us could could participate. So uh, we need no, to... We need to if we were. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> right. So we have to... Uh, understand that balance with the self-examination. Um, so, um, really, the the last and final place I want to talk about a little bit here, and we are over a bit, but um, is prayer. And um, it's, it's not God's word, and it's not a sacrament, but it's really our speaking to God um, and it's still a means of grace. And it's one of the most important means of grace. That's why it's included in almost every aspect of what we do in our liturgical service. Uh, it's both corporate and private. Uh, of, and it's always a communication of us to God. <coughs> that has been continuous through all the covenantal relationship that God has had with man is that we are allowed to speak to God, um, but God instructs us on how we are to speak. In fact, I would say the Psalms are probably a, a good encapsulation of the ways in which we can legitimately speak to God. Um, and uh, there have been so many various uh, um, applications of that throughout Christian, Christian history that you know you can find a lot a lot there devotionally as well. Um, so really, it's prayer involves our offering to God 
um, through language or not. Uh, uh, strangely, Paul tells us that because the Holy Spirit indwells us, that even when we do not have the words to speak, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with words that we don't have. And that that is a an aspect of the new covenant that is um, should be treasured. Um, so, you know, we may ask, how is prayer a means of grace? And and so, it's true that God's completely sovereign, but He condescends to us, and we're going to see next week in Sunday school, God condescending to Abraham to accomplish His will. And so, prayer is is one of those ways where is God sovereign or is prayer effectual? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so, uh, this example from Psalm 5, he says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice you for you and watch. Um, and then, of course, we have the the... Um, teaching of Christ himself through the Lord's Prayer. Um, and we can break down that prayer into very, various people have broken it down in different ways. But it's essentially um, in Matthew 6, 9 through 13, um, us addressing God, and, and it's a template, really. I mean, we like lists and templates and and instructions and this is one of the greatest instructions in scripture uh, of Christ teaching his disciples to pray and many have uh, have looked at this and come out with some very good understanding of how we are to address God but primarily the beginning is we address God as our father who are in heaven our father not Jesus' Father, but our Father. Uh, th- that was radical. Um, and and it, it's something that is, I think, vital for the apostolic understanding of Scripture in the way we pray. Um, and and I, I honestly don't make a huge distinction between spontaneous prayers and written prayers. I tend to like time to think about prayers and write them down and pray, but others are are uncomfortable with that and prefer to just spontaneously pray. My mind doesn't work that fast, and if I were in corporate worship, I want to have thought about it before I pray it, to be honest. So that doesn't mean that either one... One is better than the other, but you know both are 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 valid representation of prayer. And I, I think um, we can look at this framework of the Lord's Prayer and see we address God as Father. We have adoration or or understanding or reflection of His holiness. We we pray for the advancement of his will, his kingdom, that manifestation of the reality of the spiritual 
in the physical. And, and fourthly, I think we see a provision um, here that is um, we depend upon God. The, the provision aspect of prayer is sometimes that's all we do. Uh, we pray to God when we get in a corner, you know, or we pray to God when we want a certain way. Uh, and sometimes he condescends to that, but always uh, he hears our prayer. If we are in Christ, God hears our prayer. Whether we feel he does, think he does, mm-hmm. he does. And his word says that, we believe it. Um, and the fifth is the thing here that we see in the Lord's Prayer is confession. And and this humility of forgiveness, um, both towards others and God's forgiveness toward us. Um, and of course, um, in, in the the sometimes disputed amount of text that's within the Lord's Prayer uh, in the King James and some other versions, uh, and I think not illegitimately, we find... Uh, both this um, um, aspect of of um, spelled out a little more clearly, and I think some of the more modern versions of of protection from evil. Um, uh, it, in in some of the older versions, it sounds much more generic, like. Just protect me from from this nebulous evil. But in the language, if you translate it closely and look at it, it, it it's personal. It's protect me from the evil one. Uh, and then, of course, doxology, which all prayer should end in doxology. <laughs> <laughs>